the security of the believer. Grateful that um, this side of the manger, this side of the cross and the resurrection, that, um, that we can have a future hope that is informed by your good character and your complete promises. And uh, Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would use um, just a, a broken vessel like myself, Lord, to just bring forth your word. I pray, God, that um, you tell us that your word is living and active. It pierces, um, pierces the soul. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I just pray, God, you do that with us this morning, that we would, uh, you would just prepare us and that we would slide into this Christmas season with just an abundance of hope that is informed by who you are and, um, and what you've done. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. So um, we're just going to have a little bit of a, a business meeting up front. Um, not really a business meeting. Just, um, just need to uh, seek the body's forgiveness. Uh, if you uh, saw my post on Realm, you already know what I'm talking about. Um, if you didn't, um, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Um, and, and just... Just a reminder, I, was, I saw this quote, and I, it, really, it really fits well on me, and that is, is that, um, that I am a, uh, I'm called to be a proclaimer of truth, um, but I'm not always a good example of truth, and I think that we can all say that in different ways, because um, uh, we're all imperfect, we're all in process, uh, we've all been, um, um, God, is, the work that he's begun in me and you, he's bringing to completion. Um, it, if you notice, um, if you think back over just different prayers that I pray before I preach, oftentimes the number one prayer I pray is that, God, you'd help me stand behind your word, um, not get in front of it, because it, it's just so, it's God's word that does the work through his spirit, and um, oftentimes um, uh, we as humans can, can get in the way, and um, I believe that last Sunday I got in the way a little bit, where um, uh, after I left the service, I just had a feeling in my stomach that I, that I might have crossed some lines, that I might have added too much Dan Hardy to um, God's living, active, abiding, and transforming word. And um, uh, called a, a, a friend who was in the sermon that I, th- I thought maybe might have been taking offense. And, and he said, no, man. He says, no offense. Um, so I go, okay, gosh, Lord, are you, what are you saying to me? Is there something here and then I get, a, I get an email from a, a better, another, another friend um, that, that um, was, um, that he, he just had some challenges for me on some of the things I brought forth. For example, um, the, the sermon, the text was really on the theocracy of Judah that was treating the people in, uh, in an unjust manner, that they were using people to uh, to promote and propel their idols forward. And um, in, in, the, in the text spoke for itself, and there were some, if I don't mind saying so myself, there were some good examples, some good application. But I used things like the wall. I, I used some political examples, actually, that were polarizing. Um, where I got a few emails this week that were actually, hey, nice job, somebody needed to speak against that. And then I got wind of others as like, man, I just shut down the, the minute that I heard it. So, um, so please forgive me. My, um, my prayer, my hope is, is that, that even, um, 
if I make future mistakes and, and you know, give me three minutes, um, that you would just allow God's, work, uh, God's word to just penetrate your heart in, in spite of the, the uh, fallible preacher. So thanks for that. If you want to know more, just go to, go to Realm, and, and I posted a, um, a half a page just um, observation and uh, apology. So thank you. Um, today's sermon in Micah chapter 4 was titled, Peace on Earth, question mark. And the more that I deep dove into it and tried to understand what the heart of this was, I changed the title to, Already, Not Yet, What Now? The already of our salvation, the not yet of our salvation, and what now? How do we live in light of what God has already accomplished um, and in light of our future hope, our future inheritance, how do we live our life now? We're not going to get into a whole um, um, dialogue of how to live, but there are, there are a couple of points that I believe that Micah has um, for us today that he also had for the, um, the uh, southern kingdom uh, back then. David Tripp, Paul David Tripp says this, obedience isn't first a law problem. Obedience isn't first a problem about understanding uh, the law. Obedient, it said, he says, it's an awe problem that leads to a law problem. It's that when we are disobedient and we um, have idols, we covet and we treat others unjustly because we lose our awe of God, is what Paul David Tripp would say. That we have lost um, sight of the fact that we are, we're, all, we're all sinners um, deserving a horrible eternity. We've lost the awe of God that he would call us fallible creatures to himself. There's three questions that I'm, I'm hoping that we would ask ourselves this morning. And the first question is, is what do you understand has changed in the already as a result of, as a result of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? What do you believe has changed in the living in the reality of what Jesus has already accomplished through his birth, death, birth, life, death, and resurrection. Second question, do you think about and put your hope in the reality of the not yet? Do you think about the not yet? Do you put your hope in the reality of the not yet? And number three, have you asked the question in light of the already, with the hope of the not yet, what now? In light of the already, with the hope of the not yet, what now? How should we live our lives? Particularly, spoiler alert, as it pertains to peace versus fear. As it pertains to um, living inside the four walls of the church and having all Christian friends versus going out and uh, proclaiming the gospel. So here's what's been going on in Micah. Micah is uh, one of 15 prophets in the Old Testament. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel is where 10 tribes went. Um, they were judged. Micah pro pronounced judgment on the northern tribe. And that judgment came actually during Micah's um, prophet, prophesying years. And they were wiped off, wiped off the face of the earth, never to be returned. Now his attention focuses on the southern kingdom of Judah, with the, with the, uh, the capital being Jerusalem. And the judgment that he is pronouncing now on the southern kingdom is a result of their continual disobedience 
and their sins of idolatry, covetousness, and injustice. Is Nathan Barrio here? Okay. Darn, that's his loss. Um, so, what's that? Oh, Nathan, come here. Are you working? Oh, okay, just stay there. This is, this is for you, buddy. So, so for um, two weeks, Micah 2, Micah 3, I'm up here going um, covetousnesslessness and trying to pronounce this word. And he comes to me after the last Sunday sermon. He, goes, he says, Mr. Hardy, he says, it's covetousness. I said, I says, O-U-S, it's covetousness. He says, no, I think it's covetousness. I said, do you want to bet? No money. And he says, I, and he says yeah. <laughs> Little turd. And so, so I said, what do you want to bet? He goes, he says, I'll give you all the money that's in my pocket. And I said, I'll, I'll do this. I, says, Mike, I said, if you're right, Nathan, I'll come up in front of everybody next Sunday and say that you're right. He's right. I go, I go to Merriam, I go home and I go to Merriam Webster's dictionary on my computer and I hit the microphone and it goes, covetousness, covetousness. I go, man, I want to smash that. It's not right. It's O-U-S. Thanks, Nathan. Where are the, where's the rest of the Barrio family? Teach them some respect, would you, please? Yeah. <laughs> I hate it when 14-year-olds are right, and I'm wrong. So the sin that Micah was pronouncing judgment as a result of was their sin of idolatry, false gods, covetousness, I still can't say it, covetousness, and injustice. And the situation with the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel was hopeless when Micah delivered this message. And what we know about the northern kingdom is they're gone. What we know about the southern kingdom is that God relented from his judgment for another hundred years because they had a good king named Hezekiah. And he relented because they turned at some level. But they would be eventually overtaken by their enemy. The southern kingdom would as well. At the end of chapter 3, Micah pronounced the news of the worst judgment that any of God's people could ever hear or imagine. And he said this in verse 12. He says, therefore, because of you, Zion, because of you, Zion, Jerusalem, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. What he is telling them is that the temple that God resides in and where sacrifices are made for the forgiveness of sins will be wiped from the earth and will be overgrown with weeds. That the presence of God will disappear. But today... Mike is going to give us a reminder of hope, even in the absence of peace. Micah assures God, God's people here that there is hope for the believing remnant. There is no hope that we're going to see clearly for any human being of any race without faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So after three chapters of pronouncing judgment on God's idolatrous, covetous, unjust people, he now reminds them of the coming of a promised king who will bring lasting peace. 
And here, we see Micah reminding God's people of our sure hope, hope in a person, not hope in our circumstances. Many times, you might be like me where I'll say, I'll hope in something. And what I'm saying is that I'm hoping that everything comes together so that X, Y, and Z comes to fruition. It's optimism that everything will work out. That's human hope. That's hope based on circumstances. It's optimism based on the odds. But biblical hope is based on a person, not circumstances. The Word of God reminds us that God's past faithfulness will motivate us to future hope. God's past faithfulness, what he's already accomplished, accomplished, motivates us towards a future hope. We look forward by looking backward. We look forward by trusting in God's character and his promises. In 1914, the Great World War, it was five, uh, Christmas of, 2000, uh, of uh, 1914. World War II had just started five months earlier, and a million soldiers had died. A million soldiers have died. And there's a legendary um, t- truth, actually, because it was, it was documented in the diaries and letters of soldiers on both sides that fought this war that there was a truce on Christmas Day, 1914. It's mind-boggling. And, and I want you to, I'm going to show you a quick video clip, but I want you to, to look at this video as an imperfect picture of the already peace that we experience with God right now while we're waiting for the ultimate peace that we'll have with God where there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more suffering, and no more death. And this is just a beautiful picture of that. So if you'd roll that, Josh. Thanks. Or Nathan. Jenkins. Oakley. Nine. My name is Jim. My name is Otto. 
Pleased to meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Rose, she's called. It's schön. It's schön. picture, isn't it? It's a great picture of our already but not yet salvation. It's a great picture of as they were, um, they were together in the field playing and shaving each other, playing cards, soccer, truly is the world's greatest sport, that there was still war going around. They weren't living in ultimate peace. It was a pause. And Jesus came to put a pause in the enmity that man had against God and God had against man. That he came so that we would have peace with him, but we won't experience ultimate peace until Jesus comes back again. And at that time, there'll be no more death, no more sin, no more suffering. As we look at the, these 13 verses in Micah today, um, I believe you're going to see clearly this picture of this already salvation that we get to enjoy, this already peace that we have with a not yet salvation that will bring ultimate peace. And the question that we should be asking is, what now? How does God want us to respond as those who have been set, set free from the power and the penalty of sin? Verses 1 through 5, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house of the Lord shall be established is the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and forever. In verse 12, the temple structure, the, the very uh, place where God resides was destroyed. But Micah says here that in the later days it will be lifted up and people will flow to it. And this is an ultimate prophecy. This is a far prophecy of the sure hope of every believer that out of darkness 
Out of destruction of the temple will come eternal light. Out of the pronouncement of judgment comes promised hope. This will come about in the latter days, as Micah says. And the phrase latter days refers to the future arrival of the Messiah. And we know on this side of history that the last days started at, in the manger. The last days started at the birth of Jesus and the perfect life of Jesus and continued on to his death and his resurrection. And we know that the last days continue and will culminate upon his second return, the second advent. This temple, the mountain of the house of the Lord, is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the Gospels that you destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in what? Three days. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 2, the writer says this side of the manger, this side of the resurrection. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So it's in and through Jesus where every human being meets God. It's in and through Jesus where, where blood sacrifice was offered. It's in and through Jesus where sins are forgiven. It's in and through Jesus where you hear God's voice and learn who he is. It's in and through Jesus where God's glory and presence is encountered. And all these things are found only in Jesus alone. Everything the temple symbolized and achieved is now found in King Jesus who rules over the entire universe. See, Micah is foretelling a change in regime. The temple will be dethroned and Jesus is now enthroned as we know. Micah envisions the latter days where there will be an abundant provision and restful security instead of war. This is peace Safety and abundance that you and I get to experience this side of the cross through faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll experience in its fullness in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. It says here in verse 1 that all peoples will flow to him. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, nobody will be excluded. There's nobody that is wicked enough to, to uh, or too far away from God's outstretched saving arm. And I love this at the end of verse 2, this obscure portion. It says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. Out of Jerusalem shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And this is, um, how are these people going to know Jesus? How are they going to know the law? How are they going to know the way? Um, But through us, For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In this verse, we see that salvation and peace is meant for people of every tribe and nation and tongue. Now we see that they will hear of his way because of the gospel, the law, the truth going forth from Jerusalem. And that was the the original saints. That was the original disciples um, mandate. And it's ours today as well. Jesus said this. On the road to Emmaus, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and that on the third day he should rise again from the dead. 
And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city of Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. You see, all will come to him. Not not all in every human being. There is a heaven and a hell, but all can come to him. And it says in verse 2, it says that, um, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and walk in the way of his paths. And what, what Micah is not talking about here, if I can find the right place, is he's not talking about going to a holy man or a wise man or to a pastor or to a priest to find the meaning of life. This is coming to the Lord and finding ultimate salvation and peace. His way is the only way to lasting salvation and peace. His paths are peaceful ones, but they're not free of affliction. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. We're going to talk about affliction just a little bit. His paths are peaceful ones. They're not free from affliction, but peaceful because he is with us and he leads us into green pastures and to still waters. In verses 3 through 5, it says that he will judge between many. And this contrasts the unjust judgment that the theocracy gave the people that they were leading that we saw in verse 3. And this judging that Micah is pronouncing is based on faith, not works or status. It says that he will come to judge between the people. And this judgment will be based, it will be the, the, uh, the grain and the chaff will be separated. The weeds and the, and the wheat will be separated. It's talking about heaven and hell. It's about faith, not works. It's about faith, not status. It's about faith, not ethnicity. And he will, declare the innocent, he will declare innocent those who are the true believing remnant, whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles. And we see in verse 3 that Micah describes the meta- metaphorical instruments of war. And these, 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 these metaphorical instruments of war being traded in for instruments of peace or instruments of life. And then we see in verse 4 that he broadens this picture of peace with the hopeful picture of a return to the Garden of Eden, verse 4, before the fall, where there's an abundance, where there's peace, where there's prosperity, where there's absence of fear. And you see, what every Jew wanted, Micah lays out in verse 4 of chapter 4. What every Jew wanted and what every human being wants, I want it, is peace and prosperity. That's what every human being wants. And the vine and the fig tree that we see in verse 4 are key Old Testament images of peace and prosperity. Every human being longs for these. So he says, in that day, there will be abundant provision and restful security instead of war. Talking about the, the forest of prophecies when Jesus comes back. This is the peace, the safety, and the abundance that believers experience in part now through faith in Christ, but we will experience in the fullness in the new heaven and the new earth. Heaven will be a place of peace, not bloodshed. It'll be a place of truth, not corruption. It'll be a place of blessing, not curse. And he says, no one will make them afraid. No one will make them afraid. And it says, for the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty has spoken. He said, I've spoken. You have peace. You'll have future peace. Fear not. Take it to the bank. I reign. I rule. 
I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God in his infinite power will bring about final peace one day. And he says, even though the people, the nations, the unregenerate, the unsaved nations, the idol worshipers, even though the people walk in their ways worshiping their idols, we will walk in the name of the Lord forever where there's peace that's found. And brothers and sisters, we are in a time and we're in, in the heat's picking up where, um, where fewer and fewer people are worshiping the one true God. Fewer and fewer people are doing righteousness and justice in the name of Jesus Christ. And in order for us to be a city on the hill, in order for us to be salt and light, we need to walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. No matter what comes down the pike, no matter what friends or family we use or lose, we need to agree with Micah. And to walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. And that's where peace will be found. Peace won't be found ultimately in our things. Peace won't be found in our idols or in what we covet. Peace is found in walking with the Lord now and forever. And he goes into verses 6 and 7. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. In that day. Though the remnant of believing Jews may be small, they may be weak, they may be lame, God will gather them and make them into a strong nation. I love Ezekiel 34. He says this in verse 16. I will seek the lost, God says, and I will bring them back. I'll bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I'll destroy. I'll feed them in justice. You see, Jesus gathers the weak. Jesus gathers needy beggars like you and I. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. Jesus did not choose the strong, but the weak. The first disciples think about who they were. They were fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, outsiders. He says, I will assemble all that I have afflicted. And that happened at the time that you and I were saved, at the time that he stretched out his saving right arm and he brought you into his kingdom. And what we know in the, uh, in the, between the already but the not yet is that there will continue to be affliction. And our good God brings affliction. Our good God disciplines when we're in sin, and our good God afflicts us even when we're doing everything right. And he afflicts us when we're doing everything right so that we would depend upon him. So we would trust only in him, not just in our health, not just in our riches, not just in good rulers, and bad, but all the time, that our good God afflicts. But we know we can have peace even in our affliction because he reigns. Because we can look back at the manger, because we can look back at the cross, because we can look back at the empty tomb. And he says, and you, O tower of the flock, verse 8, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem shall come. He's saying the king is coming. He says, you've had a good king. 
David was a good king. You've never, you've had unprecedented, unprecedented prosperity. See that ten times. Unprecedented prosperity when David was your king. And you will have peace and prosperity beyond what you can imagine when Jesus returns. A king will come from the former dominion. A king who we know is Jesus will come and has come from King David's ancestry. David's reign did come again. And with David's reign came unprecedented peace. And I don't know about you, but I don't always feel peaceful. I need to like slow her down. And I need to read passages like that that remind me that God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile me to himself. And that he came to give me life so that I could live that life abundantly. He came so that I would have peace with him and have peace with fellow Christians. He came so that I could be a, not only reconciled to him, but I can be a reconciler. And what is reconciliation? At the very core, it's bringing peace to people. Not only peace between believers where we seek one another's forgiveness and then we grant forgiveness, but bringing the gospel of peace to God's enemies whom he is glad to make friends by our faithful proclamation. In verse 10, I'll afflict you. But he says, now I will rescue you. This is a picture, actually. This is a picture of what we saw on that screen, that, that this rescue will come at the end of the age. This rescue will come in the last of the days. That we've been rescued from the power of sin and Satan and death now after the first advent, his first uh, when he came and was born. But we will finally be rescued when he returns. First Peter talks about that. He says, you've been born again to a what? To a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's being kept for you in heaven, and you're being guarded for it down here. There's nothing that can happen to the inheritance because the inheritance is ultimately God, and there's nothing that can happen to you living in the gap that will prevent you from receiving the inheritance of Jesus Christ where we get to be with him for the rest of our lives. There will be pain. There is pain. There's general pain from the fallen world that we live in. But there's going to be increasing hostility, increasing pain at the hands of those who deny Jesus Christ as the only way to God. And as long as we bear the name of Christ, as long as we live it out, this is supposed to be a message of hope. I'm getting there. There will be pain. There will be pain. See, back to Micah, Judah, the southern kingdom, would, would ultimately be, be overtaken by Babylon. And it says that in what verse? In verse 10. And here's what's odd about that is that in chapter 1, Micah said that the Assyrians are at your doorstep. It's a sin of Assyria that's creeping into the church, into Israel. And now he says, Babylon's going to take you out. But then, I love this, and he says, but, but, 
the big butt of Scripture, and the Lord will rescue them from their enemies and bring them back to Jerusalem. This prophecy is ultimately pointing to the rescue from their mortal enemies. Yes, they will be rescued from Babylon. They'll be exiled for 70 years, brought back into Jerusalem, but the ultimate rescue that they need, the ultimate rescue that you and I need, the ultimate rescue that every human being needs is rescue from the power and the penalty of sin. We need rescue from the power of the flesh. We need rescue from the uh, power of death. And he says this wait, this, this waiting in the gap as exiles between the first advent and the second advent, this wait for redemption will be painful. And Micah gives us this imagery of the pain of a woman in labor. And I think the only pain worse than a woman in labor is a torn bicep. I'm pretty sure about that. I don't know. I'm just saying. Uh, have you ever had a, t- wait, ladies, have you ever had a torn bicep? Okay. I've never had a baby, so we're even. Yeah, I'm going to get emails now. So, so Micah gives this, this picture of waiting in pain for something great. You see, a woman's pain in labor is a result of the fall, but it what? It produces life. Out of your pain, he says, will come new life. And this is a picture I think we can all relate with as we live in the gap between the already and the not yet. Paul says this in Romans 8, uh, referring to this, this, um, this groaning that we experience living in the gap. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Just because we have God's Spirit, just because we're His people, doesn't mean that we're exempt from pain. Not only the, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, our final adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, see, we wait for it with patience. The martyrs in Revelation 6, 19 said they cried out, How long, Lord? And that should be our cry. That should be our cry, this side of the manger, this side of the cross, living in the gap with all the amazing blessings we've got. But how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, till you return and I'm done with this sin? How long, O oh Lord, until you return and I'm done with this suffering? And then we see here in the final three verses, we see the fate of God's enemies. We see the fate of those who will persecute us and have persecuted the church and God's people in Israel before the church. Verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her, let her be defiled, Israel. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do, they do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. It's a picture of the nations being assembled against God's people. It's always been that way. And it'll be that way until God returns, until Jesus returns. 
The you against whom the unnamed nations are assembled applies to God's people of every age. It applies to you and I. The specific setting here in Micah is probably the Assyrian siege that is going to be taking over, that, that, that over, overthrew the northern kingdom, is at the doorstep of the southern kingdom. In saying, let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Zion, Yahweh's enemies are expressing their evil desire to desecrate Jerusalem's holy temple and to expose it to public scorn. And I want to say this, it's not the temple they hate. It's not God's people they hate. It's God. They want to destroy God's temple and destroy God's people because of God. It's God that they despise. And I think it's important here to remember that the wicked, the ones who want to destroy us, the ones who wanted to destroy God's people from the beginning, they're not our enemies. They're not our enemies. Now, we have enemies. We have enemies as a country. Um, Osama bin Laden was an enemy. And he should have been shot. I think he was. Maybe somebody shared the gospel with him and he came to Christ and he got shot. There should be justice that is played out. But we shouldn't view the wicked as our enemies. The enemy is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. Death is our enemy. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 6. You know him. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You don't have enemies. God does. There's pain at the hands of the wicked. There's general pain from the fallen world. But there will become increasing hostility towards you and I who bear the name of Yahweh. And he says in verse 12, he says, basically, my enemies, God says, they're clueless and they're going to be defeated. They're clueless and they're going to be defeated. They don't know or understand that he is in sovereign control even over their evil actions. And they're being used by him, even in their evil actions, to bring about good. Their end is destruction. It says that he has gathered them as grain on a threshing floor. And grain, a, a threshing floor, I got called on this after the first service, and, and, and I'm right, whoever questioned me was wrong, I'm pretty sure, until I go home and Google it, but I'm, I'm wrong. Uh, but, a, but a threshing floor is a, flat, is a flat surface back in that time that they would, they would pick the sheaves and they would throw them down on there, and actually animals, oxen and donkeys, would actually stomp around. They'd, they'd walk them around, it would separate the grain from the chaff. <laughs> Last service I called it chafe. And I said, well, that's, you know, I guess that's what you get when you work out. But chaff is actually what separates from the grain. So he has gathered them as grain on the threshing floor. And he said that this, the harvest, picking the grain, picking the sheaves, the, the, harvest, the harvested produce would spread it over the threshing floor. Then these, addling oxen, these cattle and oxen would be led over it, crush it, break the sheaves apart from their, with their hooves. The grain would be separated from the husks or the chafe or the chaff and then tossed into the air so that the wind could blow the chaff away, leaving only the good edible grain. This is called winnowing, and this is a picture of heaven and hell. This is a picture of final 
judgment. This is a picture of what will happen to every human being who does not turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Of the nations who will come against God during the end times, the prophet Micah says this, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, they do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And the idea is that the God of Israel will demolish his enemies like oxen trampling grain on the threshing floor. They're God's enemies, they're not ours. This is a symbol of heaven and hell. And I want to remind you this, the grain that is gathered into the barn by faith is a gift of God who provides our righteousness, who provides our spiritual safety through Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, so that we can have lasting peace. We live in the already. We have hope for the not yet. And the question is, is what now? What now? The reality of Jesus' birth brought us peace. The reality of our impending rescue brings us further peace. And the reality of our final hope and the picture of the threshing floor motivates action. As I'm I'm looking around this room, as I'm seeing brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of this faith community, the reason that Windsor Community Church exists is the Great Commission. It's to go and make disciples. It's to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, the days of people coming to the, the, the mega church to hear some great communicator um, cast out on 15 screens, um, those days are going. And the way that people are going to be reached is through you and I proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ by shining and sharing Jesus. It certainly starts with your pastors. But God wants to use you in ways that maybe you can't even fathom. He wants to use you in ways that will actually set people free from sin and the power of their flesh. God wants to use crackpots like you and I to shine forth the light of his glory to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your kindness to us. Thank you that we, uh, we live on this side of, um, of the timeline of eternity. We live on this side of, uh, of your uh, unfolding plan. We live right in the middle of it, actually. And God, I thank you that, um, that your word is true, that your promises um, will be fulfilled. I thank you that we, we don't have to look past Genesis 3, that after Adam and Eve and, and all of us after them were eternally separated from you, at that moment, you clothed them with the animal skins, which is a picture of Jesus' future sacrifice. They didn't know that then. We know that now. And that you promised that you would come and that the seed that came from Eve that, that would come out and crush the head of the serpent a picture of of crushing sin and crushing Satan. We thank you for the promises that you gave to Israel and to uh, to Abraham and to Israel. We thank you for all all the things that you needed to do 
in order to have Jesus make it all the way through the seed to be born in a lowly manger. And we know that he lived the perfect life. That the answer to us doing justice and righteousness, the answer actually was, no, we can't do it. Thank you, Jesus, for living it for us. And I think it's it's by faith in Jesus' sacrificial life, his perfect life and sacrificial death, it's by faith that we've been set free from the power of sin, the power of Satan, and the grip of death. And God, I pray that you would help us live in this reality. You are truly worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and we love you, and we thank you that you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.